Welcome to the new Health Club podcast. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. This episode of the New Health Club podcast is part of our special Heal Soul series, which is sponsored by Dr. Bronner's, the activist soap company from California. Dr. Bronner's is a family-owned company founded in 1948 that's dedicated to honoring the vision of its founder, Emmanuel Bronner, by making personal care products of the highest quality and by dedicating profits to promote a better world for all. The Bronner family started making soap in 1858 here in Germany and carries on the family soap-making tradition today by using the company as an engine for progressive social change. Dr. Bronner's dedicates profits to organizations working in support of regenerative organic agriculture, animal rights, community betterment, criminal justice reform, fair pay and fair trade and drug policy reform, which includes the responsible and equitable integration of psychedelic medicine into American and global culture. For more information on Dr. Bronner's in Germany, please visit drbronner's.de. For more information on Dr. Bronner's globally and in the United States, please visit drbronner.com. Hi and welcome to a new episode. Before today's show, I was very excited. Since my guest Deborah Mash is your cool researcher lady from Miami, she's tough, educated, and familiar with the cocaine wars and drug wars in Miami. Deborah Carmen Mash is an American professor of neurology and pharmacology at the Leonard M. Miller School of Medicine and director of the Brain Endowment Bank at the University of Miami. In the 90s, Mesh and her team found a third substance that addicts produce if they use alcohol and cocaine at the same time, a molecule that makes addiction impossible to beat. Now Mesh is researching ibogaine, a natural indole alkaloid derived from the West African iboga plant. In African traditional medicine and rituals, chewing the yellow-colored root or bark is used to produce hallucinations. These days, MASH and Atai Life Sciences have teamed up to explore the ibogaine substance as a new mental health drug to beat alcohol, heroin, and other opioid addictions. In our conversation, Deborah talks about her journey finding ibogaine and realizing what a big potential the substance could have to cure addiction on a broader scale. Please enjoy the episode. We're very happy to have Deborah MASH on the New Health Club show today. And I would love to if you would introduce yourself to our listeners and to the people who watch that show. Deborah Mash, I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Demerex, which is located in Miami, Florida, and we're advancing medications for the treatment of the current opioid epidemic. I know you're very much involved at the moment with ibogaine. This is the main thing you you're working on right now. So, and I watched one show one podcast with you where you explained a little bit 
how you got in touch with Ibogaine, which was a little bit of a journey that brought you to the substance. And just to include this before you start, it is, as to my understanding, a, a psychedelic that is kind of not really researched right now and that is just in a process of becoming probably a very important compound in the whole psychedelic development. Ibogaine has been a, a very long journey for me. I began working with the substance several decades ago when I first heard about it. And it was described to me as this way that people could break out of their intractable cycle of drug and alcohol dependence. And I had to see it with my own eyes. So I was invited to travel to Amsterdam where there were patients in an underground railroad of addicts helping addicts. And there was a very wonderful doctor there by the name of, of Dr. Bosch Johns who was working with Howard Lutzoff. And Howard Lutzoff had formed a company called NDA International to make the drug available to patients who needed to have a way of breaking their intractable cycle of drug dependency. He himself was an addict and he made the seminal discovery of taking a dose of Ibogaine and realized that 36 hours later, he had no withdrawal symptoms and he had no craving or desire to go back out and use the drug. And of course, when you're addicted to opioids, you can't just stop. You need a way to interrupt that cycle of dependence. And he discovered, he made that first discovery. He then repeated that experiment with six of his friends. And what was quite remarkable was not only did it allow them not to experience the pain of opioid withdrawals. You know, when you become dependent on opioids, you can't just stop using them because when you just stop, when you abruptly stop using them, you get very sick. And this is the, the symptoms of the withdrawals. So it's, you can have a very severe anxiety, nausea. You have the cold chills, sweats, and it, it's, muscle cramping. These are painful. The patients report that these are very painful symptoms. Also, uh, people who are, are using opioids are afraid to go through withdrawal. So in this way, they keep going back to use the drug to prevent the withdrawal. So I, keep, I need to use again and again and again. But he demonstrated that the Ibogaine, one dose of Ibogaine would block all of these symptoms. But what was more remarkable was the fact that they didn't want to go out and get high. So it wasn't only the interruption of the withdrawal syndrome, but there was also this extra benefit that the people got insight into why they were using their drugs. And for that window, it was really an addiction interrupter. It stopped from people from wanting to go out and use again. So, and... Just before we, we get further into your encounter with the substance, so since we talked on this show mainly about mushrooms and LSD, what is ibogaine? Like, as far as my understanding, it's a root from an African region, but it's still not kind of clear where it really comes from. So maybe you're the expert and you explain what ibogaine is. So ibogaine comes from the roots of a plant called Tabernanthi iboga. It grows in the region of Gabon and Cameroon in Western Equatorial Africa. And the legend has it that this was first discovered by the pygmies. So it's part of the medicine of the deep forest. 
many different psychedelic molecules come from different parts of the world, some from South America, some from Mexico, some from the East. This is one that comes from the continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. There is more than 100 years of ethnobotanical use of Ibogaine. And in Ibogaine, it's part of an Afro-Christian syncretic movement where people take Ibogaine in a high dose, almost as if it's a rite of passage, an initiation. So the psychedelic benefits are very different than other molecules like psilocybin or LSD or ecstasy. They're different in the sense that you don't have the fractal patterns and the geometry and the color and lights. What you have is the life review. Patients describe it more as an almost lucid dream, as a waking dream state. And that's why we consider Ibogaine to be an oniric molecule, a molecule that will bring about a dream. Mm -hmm. Patients who are addicted report that those visions seem to help them, that in the process of undergoing this very vivid life review, that they get in touch with their demons, that they get an awareness and understanding of why they use drugs, why they need it to continue down this path of using drugs. You know, many people become addicted to drugs and alcohol because they're self-medicating. They're self-medicating traumas, childhood neglect, abuse, loss, death of a loved one, all the things that can make people self-medicate to not feel pain. Some of us are resilient. We can have traumas and we have coping strategies. But for some patients who become locked into an intractable cycle of use, it's these inner wounds, these traumas that fuel this cycle of dependency. So you take that first line of heroin and you feel really good and you don't have the pain. You're cut off from the suffering from the hurtful memories, from the trauma. I feel that kind of way of looking at, the, at trauma and addiction is just emerging right now, way more than a couple of years ago, I feel. What I found very interesting uh, researching about you is this Miami Vice metabolite task or like group that you founded in the university. And I think for the first time, I really read about this specific cocktail that comes out of putting cocaine and alcohol together, which creates another molecule in your system. And actually, suddenly I realized, wow, I know so many people who always did this together. So as far as I understand, you kind of researched this kind of new molecule, and that was leading you to the cure, basically, to ibogaine, right? Or maybe you can elaborate a little bit on the journey from that specific cocktail to finding ibogaine as a tool of bringing people away from this. I'm a professor emeritus from the University of Miami School of Medicine in the Department of Neurology, and I also had a secondary appointment in pharmacology. My particular area of research was the human brain, looking at the effects of drugs of abuse on the brain and behavior. Miami was, at the time when I first started to set up my laboratory, we had funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is one of the institutes at the NIH. And so these were the dollars that funded our research at the University of Miami. Our program worked very closely with the Miami-Dade Medical Examiner's Department. 
And unfortunately, because of Miami's close proximity to Central and South America and the transshipment of cocaine through the Bahamian corridor, Miami was on the front end loading of the cocaine epidemic. And it was really horrific. We had violent crime. We had crack exposed infants. We had people dying from cocaine-related intoxication deaths. The hospital emergency room was seeing many more people with cocaine-related disorders. Things got very bad in Miami very quickly. And of course, crack cocaine is cheap and it's very addicting. But Miami used to also be a kind of an exclusive scene where it was very trendy to use cocaine, powder cocaine, and people combined it most often with alcohol. So when Miami Vice was on television, it was the cocaine champagne, the cocaine cowboys, and Miami was flooded. We were flooded with cocaine. So people from all walks of life were using cocaine recreationally. It was a popular drug in South Florida, in the clubs, in the bars, in the restaurants. I mean, you couldn't go to a party in Miami and not have somebody pull out a vial of cocaine. My research got into the cocaine epidemic because of the funding. And it was through that work that a colleague of mine when said to me, you know, we should study cocaethylene. And I'll tell you, the first time I heard about this, I said, what is this? Cocaine what? Cocaethylene, I, I don't know what that is. And he says, well, you know, Dr. Mash, it's when your body forms a third substance. When you take cocaine and you mix it with alcohol, so cocaine and booze together makes this third molecule. And this is formed in the body. I said, draw it. Draw the molecule on the blackboard. And he did. And I said, can you make it for me? And he said, I can. So we had it in the test tube. And what we were able to demonstrate was that it's more euphoric. So people like the high. People combine cocaine with alcohol. It increases the high and it makes it longer lasting. And you don't get the crash. And it was all through this molecule. So we got national recognition for this. And it was actually written up in Science Magazine as the so-called Miami Vice metabolite, cocaine and booze lethal mix. It was while we were getting all of this publicity, all of this publicity was when I first heard about Ibogaine. And I remember there was a coalition, you know, there was such a movement in the United States at the time to make America drug-free. Just say no to drugs. Of course, it didn't work. Um, in fact, Americans love drugs. It's a very bad thing about our country is that we fuel these epidemics. Americans buy the cocaine, they buy the amphetamine, they buy the heroin. You know, we were uh, impacted post 9-11. More heroin hit the streets of the United States, flooded. So not only did we have the terrorist act, but we had the flooding of to our streets, the poisoning of our communities with Afghan heroin, cheap heroin, very pure and very addicting. We need a solution. Mm -hmm. And when I first heard about this and I said, well, it was actually a black gentleman had come up to me at a, at a meeting I had presented at the Coalition for a Drug-Free America. The president of the University of Miami, the late Tad Foote, asked me if I would present on my work on the Miami Vice metabolite. You never say no to the president of your university, so off I go. 
and I gave my lecture and this uh, a group of people came up to me after the talk and this gentleman was urgently trying to explain to me about this drug from Africa that could stop people from taking drugs. And I listened to him for a few minutes and I was like, what, what is he talking about? It sounded to me at the time so far-fetched. I had never heard about it. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I think I was a little short with this gentleman. And I said, you know, sir, there's a lot of people waiting to talk to me. I'm sorry. I've never heard about this drug. I don't know what it is. Thank you. Thank you for telling me about it. But I'm going to talk to some other people. So that was the first time I heard the word Ibogaine. I then went to the college on many months later. I went to the college on the problems of drug dependence. And this is a, a, a national organization of addiction researchers, uh, people who do basic research and people also involved in, in the clinic in trying to look for new medications to treat addiction. And again, I go into a, a meeting room and I sit in the back of the room and I have my program on my lap. And there's a man by the name of Professor Glick who's talking about this drug from Africa and he's giving it to rats, and these rats will self-administer cocaine. You know, rats will self-administer all the things that humans will abuse. They'll drink alcohol. They'll self-administer heroin. They'll self-administer amphetamines. They'll self-administer cocaine. And they'll self-administer at very high rates of responding. So it's like a skitter box. They'll mm -hmm. press lever, and they'll get a hit of cocaine. And they learn to do this. And if you let them go for it, they will keep going and it's self-administered. So it's a great animal model. It's an important animal model of drugs that, are, that have what we call abuse liability. If the rats self-administer, they're going to be abused by humans. And the regulatory agencies use this. It's an important scientific discovery. So here's Professor Glick. He's got these rats that will self-administer cocaine and heroin, and he gives them this drug from Africa, and they stop taking the drug. Now I sit up in my chair. I go, that's that same drug that that African man was trying to desperately to tell me about, and I wasn't listening. But now I was listening. Mm -hmm. And they say good things happen in threes. The third thing was I came back from that meeting and Howard Lutzoff had contacted me and left me a message on my answering machine wanting to talk to me about my work on the Miami Vice metabolite because he wanted to use our research to help him with one of his patent applications. He wanted to use our research to support his use of Ibogaine as an interrupter for polydrug dependency. One, two, three, and I'm mm -hmm. off to the races. But actually, okay. I was off to Amsterdam to see it with my own eyes. And I did. I went to Amsterdam and saw Ibogaine completely block the signs and symptoms of withdrawal in two opiate-dependent patients who had been abusing a lot of heroin, one who was abusing a lot of heroin, and the other who had been maintained on methadone. He, too, was a heroin addict. He was an opioid abuser, and he had been on methadone for many years. Did this change your idea of a neurologist at this moment? Because suddenly it was like this whole new thing that would 
eventually, if you would research it, would change so many things. I mean, like we've seen it with alcohol, suddenly um, going to AA meetings is suddenly like, wait, but you could also use psychedelics, which they wanted to use in the beginning, but then they didn't do it anymore. I think that must be, or like I can imagine, it must be like a very interesting kind of reinvention of your understanding as a neurologist. I will have to say, you know, I'm trained as a neuroscientist and a neuropharmacologist. So I was always interested in drugs and the brain. And I was, my research was in the Department of Neurology. I think about the brain a lot. And I've had the privilege to study the human brain for over three decades. So I'm the founder and director of the University of Miami, former director of the University of Miami Brain Endowment Bank, one of the largest biorepository of human brains from people that have donated them for research. So, you know, well aware about the idea that there are going to be neurological changes that are going to occur when someone becomes addicted to drugs or alcohol. At the same time, when I saw the open label efficacy of this medical intervention, I immediately said, this has to be tested. This is too fundamentally important to not understand why this works. How can you give one dose of a drug and turn back the clock on years of hardcore drug use? And that's what led us to the discovery of the metabolite of Ibogaine. Ibogaine is converted in the body to an active metabolite. Ibogaine is very interesting from a chemical standpoint, not only from a neurological standpoint, but also from the chemistry of it. Because again, you have the Ibogaine effect. First, you have the effect of the Ibogaine. You have the visions, the visionary experience with the Ibogaine. But then in the body, the Ibogaine is also converted to an active metabolite. And what's interesting about that is that the Ibogaine is cleared from the blood usually in under 24 hours. So one day the Ibogaine is cleared, but the metabolite has a very long half-life. So it stays in the blood for many days, perhaps up to a week. And we've also detected the metabolite in the urine out to three weeks. So it's logical then that this is a neurochemical reset. So you're getting the benefit. You're getting the therapeutic benefit of the psychological intervention. At the same time, you're getting very powerful reset to the brain precisely within the addiction circuit of the brain. It would be easier if I could show you a brain and show you this circuit. I don't have the diagram for your listeners, but There's a part of the brain, deep in the brain, that is where rewarding substances work. And natural rewards are very important. People, you and me, people like us who get up in the morning, we feel good, we get high on life. We derive pleasure from our environment. We're excited about our work. We love what we're doing. We're self-motivated. We have a good pain threshold. Takes a lot to knock us down. We have lots of neurotransmitter called dopamine. Dopamine Mm -hmm. is the feel-good neurotransmitter. I like to think of it as drug, sex, and rock and roll. But it's so important to us because it's what gives us that drive, the determination, the will to get out of bed every day and to go again. Some people have low dopamine. They're just born that way. 
Mm-hmm. So the neurochemical baseline is a bit lower. Just like in depression, people have low serotonin. Well, people who are at risk for addiction may have low dopamine. And so when you take that first cigarette, you take that first martini, you take that first line of cocaine, you get this change in your level of dopamine in the brain and you feel good. Not only do you feel good, you feel normal. Yeah, I was just going to say, for, for some people, it's just the combination of martini, cocaine, smoking is like to come back to a level where you can start to communicate with people. And then that puts you in, in the position to just even talk to people where other people just go, oh, I, have, I think that's a nice person at a party. I'm just going to talk to them. But I mean, there are so many people who just really need that kind of threshold almost. And then they can be a socially functioning, I feel. So then, of course, we're talking like when, when you went to Amsterdam. So we're talking 90s or 80s, 90s? In the early 90s. So then you realize, okay, this, I have to research this, which means you will need money to research this, right? Also something that is, I mean, as we see now with some psychedelics that, I mean, now as right now, but let's say a couple of years ago, there were so many compounds where people were just seeing the, the potential, but still now we're getting into an, a time where there will be money for this. But you were as very early on as the researcher for this, you were probably had to come with like a super... <laughs> superpowers to find money for this. So what, what did you do? That's a good way to put it, actually, superpowers. I mean, I mean, the first superpowers were going in front of the FDA because you can't okay. give a drug to a human being unless you have FDA permission. So we had to really jump through a lot of barriers. The first barrier was getting the University of Miami to allow us to work with the drug. The drug is scheduled It's a Schedule One drug. You can't import it. You have to have permission from the Drug Enforcement Administration. So you had to have a DEA permit to bring the drug. So University of Miami, to get them to give us permission to work with the compound. Luckily, the University of Miami and the leadership at the university were visionary. And they wanted to help to solve the problem of addiction. And they supported me and I had a good reputation at the school of being a, a hardworking investigator. So they bet on me. Going to the FDA and the National Institute on Drug Abuse was extremely important because I was funded by the NIH. That's where my money came from. Howard Lutzoff had the patents. So normally the person who had the patents would be the one to raise the money. But he couldn't raise the money. So that was another barrier. So he couldn't fund us. So I decide, well, I'm going to go to the National Stone Drug Abuse. I'm going to tell them what I saw. I'm going to share the data. And they were aware of Ibogaine. They knew about Ibogaine because there was a movement in the U.S. to begin clinical trials with Ibogaine. And in fact, NIDA actually spent money to try to do some of the early work that the FDA would require so that we could get permission to go forward. We had human data because we had gone with Lutz off and we had seen the information. We had discovered the active metabolite. We knew about the metabolism of the drug. All of this scientific information was beginning to come together. And our group at the University of Miami was very fundamental in bringing that about. Go to the FDA, we present. What a day. What a day. The first uh, meeting at the FDA was in 1993. 
We went up in, in front of a committee called the Drug Abuse Advisory Committee. It was an open meeting. I allowed the meeting to be open. I was so excited about this, you know, and a bit naive, I would say, also. I thought, everybody's going to want this. They're just yeah. going to hear about this, and they're going to want it. And there were people there who had taken Ibogaine, and they were providing testimonials in this public forum. So, you know, the FDA and the National Institute on Drug Abuse assembled a group of experts. Then it began. And it just became so apparent to me that this was not going to go forward. And that perhaps there were people didn't want to see this go forward. You know, you never know till you know till you know. But that was my perception. And I'm a fighter. It's who I am. I don't know. I'm, I'm born this way. I'm a fighter and I'm a bit competitive. I was determined to go through. And we closed the meeting at the FDA, closed it, said everyone out. And we went into closed door session. And in 1993, we came out with the first permission to test Ibogaine in humans. And in that, in those studies, it was Ibogaine veterans. It was people, we were doing the safety tests and the FDA because there was split in the committee, said, well, we will allow you to go forward with people who've already been exposed to Ibogaine because it will mitigate the risks of this treatment. We'll allow you to get started in humans, but you're going to do it in these patients. So we began. You just said it like coming fast forward to now. So now you're entering, let's say, really supported research, I think with Atai also. Well, exclusively with Christian Angermeyer, who was also on the show already. So now, I, I mean, you could probably say you now have a, a really good support system to find out what, how to turn ibogaine into also, let's say, a medication or bring it to a medicational level. So how do you approach the study and who, who do you think are the people who really need it most? Your question is really an excellent question. Who is Ibogaine going to be targeted for? What patients are going to be the best yeah. to benefit from Ibogaine if it's developed as a medication? Today is very different than when I started back in the 1990s down this road because of a tie and because of the visionary founders in that company, clearly they understand that pharmaceutical companies are not developing new medications for mental health disorders. The acquired disease of addiction is a mental health disorder. So in order to get a drug approved through the FDA or through, or through the European medicine authorities, the regulatory authorities, the path to regulatory approval so that we can give this drug to patients requires many millions of dollars. So it's important for us to design what is called a pivotal study so that we can move quickly ahead. This has been already 30 years going on, 30 years for me. And so we have no time to waste. And in 2017, at the height of the heroin epidemic, where people were dying, where more people, young people, were dying of heroin intoxication deaths, of heroin overdoses, than any other cause in the United States, I decided that I needed to finish what I started, that you get one chance in life to do something that may make a difference. Mm -hmm. And the time was now, right now. Mm -hmm. A tie has not only the, the resources, the financial resource, but they have a brilliant team of drug developers. 
they have the roadmap. They understand how to advance these molecules. And the time is right because of the change in our society, because of medical marijuana, whether it's psilocybin for intractable depression, or it's ketamine, again, for depression and other indications, or MDMA for treating post-traumatic stress disorder in our veterans that have have returned from Iraq and Afghanistan. People want alternatives to the benzodiazepines, to the Xanax. They want alternatives. We're targeting Ibogaine for regulatory approval, specifically for using it for withdrawal management. I have spoken publicly about the issues with these pop-up so-called Ibogaine clinics. They're often not safe. You don't know what the drug is that you're taking. There's no certificate of analysis with the drug. So someone is giving you capsules of what they say is Ibogaine, but you don't know what you're taking. There may not be medical staff there. And keep in mind that the people who suffer from drug and alcohol addiction often have other health issues. They may have cardiac issues. They may have damaged their livers. They're not healthy people. And last but not least, unlike psilocybin, which is very safe, it has a very wide therapeutic to toxic window. Ibogaine has a narrow therapeutic to toxic. So if you go to one of these places, you are putting yourself potentially in harm's way. And people have bought Ibogaine on the internet too. Some very, you know, bad actors have sold Ibogaine to people desperate. Just what you said, this is my last chance. I'm exhausted. I've been fighting my addiction for so long. People become so desperate for a way out, a solution. And it just, it breaks my heart when I hear these stories over and over and over again. When we went offshore, I established an R&D program in the Caribbean. We had medical doctors, consultants from the University of Miami. We had a professor from McGill University, a behavioral psychiatrist. We had psychiatry, we had cardiology, we had psychologists, we had therapists. We were learning about the drug. We take care of the patients. If we didn't think you were a good candidate for this, you did not get Ibogaine. We would help you the best we could, but you would, we would not put you in harm's way. People have died who've taken Ibogaine in unsafe settings. And unfortunately, I've had the opportunity to speak to family members, to talk to the police, to have reviewed those case reports. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. We need to make Ibogaine available for patients. No one should have to go and take Ibogaine in an unsafe setting. And that's what a tie is making possible. And when do you think, like, just like roughly, when do you think this will be possible, even to go to a clinic and before there's a medication? So we are working very hard and very fast with our colleagues at a time to get in front of the regulatory agencies to ask for their collaboration and guidance to help us to design a pivotal study to demonstrate the risks, the benefits, and that we can give the drug safely and begin to show that the drug has efficacy for patients. 
I believe that Ibogaine can be given safe, safely to patients. We understand how to do this, but we have to prove it. We have to prove it yeah. to our colleagues and we have to prove it to the regulators so that we can get permission to advance to phase three clinical trials. We need a little luck. We need a lot of money. Unfortunately, COVID-19 was not on our side with this because we were ready to get back into the clinic and we had some backtrack with the current pandemic of COVID-19. However, we're back on track and we will be going in front of regulatory agencies and, and talking to them and asking for them to give us guidance and support. And with their help, uh, we'll be in the clinic and we hope to be dosing patients by the end of this year. Great. Well, let us know what we can do to support your mission. So thank you, Deborah. It was amazing to have you on the show. Very, very interesting. And especially we want to hear more about Ibogaine very soon from you. And you have to come back on the show. Thank you for inviting me. And I've enjoyed this very much. And I sincerely appreciate your interest in our work. Great. Anytime you can come back. 